together. Dear Lord Jesus, as we examine now in your word what it means to be a son or a daughter of light, Lord, remind us that the shadows of darkness that still exist within the flesh will not stand. Lord, they will push for temptation. They will push for sin. They will push for the destruction of your people. But Lord, by trusting in you, Lord, the army of darkness will not succeed. By trusting in you, Lord, the power of Satan will not overcome. By trusting in you, Lord, not even the darkness of death, the closing of physical eyes forever, is the end. Lord, it is only the beginning for the Christian. It is only the first step into eternity. Lord, what we have now is so short and often so meaningless. What we need is ahead, Lord, in your presence, in a kingdom where there is no sun, for you will be their light. Lord, we thank you. And we ask you now to bring your word to our hearts as we examine, as we study, as we read, as we pray. Lord, that we would be sons and daughters of the kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. James opens his verse here with a charge to you and I, not to be deceived. Because he loves us. He calls us his beloved. And who is trying to deceive us? In historical context, there were pagan religions surrounding the dispersed Jews who were telling the Jews, oh, you can worship with us. You can worship our false gods. You don't have to give up your newfound Christianity. Just come with us. Join with us. We can all go along to get along. And James is saying, don't fall for it. Don't be deceived, my beloved, because every good, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. There is no gift to be found on earth that is good. What does mankind give each other? War, sickness, famine, death. That is what we give each other. That's all I can produce. I'm a creature of the dirt. The, the sand that God reached into and folded and warmed and then breathed life into, that is what I'm made out of. And all I can do is return to it. All I can do is disperse it. All I can do is dish out death. That's the human heart. Called an idol factory by the reformers. Called evil by God in Proverbs. A place of wickedness of which who can know? God knows. Every perfect thing is from above. Church, don't look on the bottom shelf for your grace today. Don't look on the bottom shelf for your perfection today. Don't look on the ground where there is filthy and nastiness and expect that is to where your righteousness to come from. Look above. Look up. What is this good gift? If you would, turn to Luke chapter 11. I'm going to move to a lot of text today. I won't apologize for it. I'm just letting you know that we'll be moving to a lot of text today. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 11. The example of a good gift. What is the qualification for what is good? Often in our world, good is an objective standard defined by culture. One culture's good is another culture's evil. So what really counts as good? Luke chapter 11, verse 11. What father among you, that is what parent, if their child asked for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent. Can you imagine one of the little children coming in, maybe even children's church, and they're expecting a cracker, they're expecting a goldfish maybe, and instead the Sunday school worker hands them a live snake? We're not that kind of church. What parent would give their child, when they asked for an omelet for breakfast, a rotten egg? You might be tempted to, but you wouldn't. 
Verse 12, or if he asked for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Can you imagine a little child coming up like Oliver Twist, the orphan, and saying, Father, can I please have some more? And instead of some more porridge, they give you a live scorpion that stings your hand? Who would do this? Look at the next verse, verse 13. This is the charge. If you then who are evil, if you then who are evil, who's he talking to? In context, he's talking to Jews, right? In context, but but the spiritual application coming forth to you and I. We who are evil know how to good, good give gifts to our children. We know how to dish out gifts to our children. I, without God's help, can give my daughters money to buy toys and they'll be happy. And I'll think I've done something. I can do that out of an evil heart. And we see this today. We see what we what is called holy, but it's actually just some morality that's pretty decent. Even most charities today, ripe with corruption because it's easy to give out food. It's easy to take medicine to, to impoverished places. It's easy to help orphans and not have the Spirit of God. It's easy. Even the Jews had a system for taking care of the weak and the sick. And they look good doing it. Jesus actually condemns it at one point. He says, those of you who go to, to the sick on the street in front of all the eyes and give out food and medicine, looking at, everyone looking at you and how good you are. It's easy. Those of us who are evil know how to give good gifts. So if I can do it out of my evil, is it a good gift? It might sound good to the world. If you walked to a, to a person on the street and said, here, have $1,000, they would be like, yes, that was a good gift. And that same person, if you walked up, as Peter did in Acts chapter 3, and said, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That same person rejecting Christ would say, that's not a good gift. And we see this now. There's a huge push against prayer for situations like the Ukraine. People actually criticizing Christians for praying for situations. Saying, oh, you need to do more than that. You need, to, you need to actually go over there with some money. You need to actually go over there with food. And that does need to happen, and there are people who are called by God to do that. But not everyone is called to those ministries. Everyone is called to pray. Everyone. And they're criticizing that now. But the criticism is, is in a false foundation because we think... Taking food and medicine for the body is actually going to help the soul. But it will not. It does not. You cannot help the soul by fixing the body. We tried that in America. It's called behavior modification. We're trying it in the public schools, and I'll let you see how it's going. We tried it in the church. The conservatives fought a major war in the 70s to bring back true inerrancy. And then when they finally got it, when they finally won, they suddenly decided, this gospel isn't very entertaining to anybody, and they threw it out. Let's go with this easy believism. We just tell people, oh, just come as you are. Jesus, take you any kind of old way. That's not the same thing as saying, come in, sinner, and repent and believe. God will forgive your sin. This easy believism was saying, you don't really even have to change. I had people get upset at me on Facebook a month ago, because a famous preacher, I'm not even going to name him, said that you don't have to change after you get Jesus. Having Christ doesn't change you. And I took the quote and I posted it with Corinthians, right, that you become a new creature after salvation, and people actually were upset at me, and you know what the best part was? I didn't care! 
Not that I didn't care about them or their, their souls or any of that. I did not care that this false gospel was being exposed for what it was. And I don't. And you should not either. Because what is false and is against God needs to be demonstrated by God's people as evil and called out for what it is. It's not unloving to say to the one who is in a false salvation and theology, get out, repent of your sin, believe in Christ, turn to the true Savior and live eternally. Guys, this is what we're commanded to do. But we're also afraid of offending somebody nowadays. We have to tiptoe around everybody's feelings. Your feelings are going to burn in the lake of fire. If we don't do what we're commanded to do, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt eternally. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? We know how to give gifts and we're evil. The gift that God gives, no evil attached, how much better is it? How much glorious does it bring him? How far better is the kingdom of God than the riches of all the earth? Remember that. It's going to come back at the end. Evil knows how to delight and bless your children. Evil knows how to tempt your children to follow after it. And if you will not raise them, evil will. We have entire generations today who are struggling because they're the children of evil. They have been raised by evil, led by evil, and now their actions follow after evil. And we have failed in this way. We are called, and we're going to see this in some verses in the next coming weeks in James, we are called to minister to the widows and orphans. And the amount of spiritual widows and orphans that exist around us now is almost in the infinite. There's almost no way to finish. Jesus said, you'll always have this ministry with you. The poor will always be with you. And the poor in spirit are here now, and they need the gospel, not the fun, though there can be fun. Not games, though there can be games. Not food, though there can be food. They need what truly will save the soul. They need the truth. Flip back to James in verse 17 of our text today. It says, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The balance of light and dark in the scripture is one of good and evil. Darkness always being presented as evil most of the time and light being presented as good. The Father who has given you life calls himself the Father of light itself. He's the Father of lights with whom there is no variation. So he doesn't change he has no shadows within himself. He is not hiding anything from you. God is not trying to trick you. This is something I teach students all the time. God never says once in his word, test me scientifically and physically prove I am here. It's not a trap. Christianity is not a trick. It's not a moral conundrum trap thought for you. God says, have faith. Have faith in me. Repent and believe. These are spiritual things. God's not trying to trick you. God is showing you the true path. But we reject. We walk away. If you would, turn to the very first book of your Bible. The very first chapter and the very first verse. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. There's an image now that I'm 
very excited to preach about and bring forth. I hope that my weak human efforts will express it correctly as God does in his word. In Genesis chapter 1, creation begins to explode in light. In the beginning, God, now that's an entire sermon right there that I'm not preaching today, though it's a worthy one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Imagine that kind of infinite darkness. Have you ever been in a cave system? You ever turn out the lights down there and suddenly it gets so black that you can't see your hand in front of your face? That infinite darkness. That's what God is hovering over, over the face of the world. The darkness is absolute. It's hard to imagine darkness so pure that nothing can exist within it. Even when I was in a cave system, some joker turned on his phone light and started flashing it around. Because we have all the devices and all the ways that we can stop darkness and fight it off and try to get away from it. But we can't do anything about the darkness in our own hearts. There is nothing, absolutely nothing existing until God speaks the words let there be light. Many of you know that I enjoy running. And often I will run in the morning before the sunrise. And many times, and I try to time it this way to experience the touch of God. Many times as I'm running, I'll have a view of the eastern sky and the sun will begin to crack the sky open. And the light begins to infiltrate the dark world. And for me, who's running... There are any number of dangers from holes in the road to dogs who have gotten off their chain to trucks without their lights on. And so for me, moving through this dark world, I am anxious. I am sometimes afraid. I am in danger. But when the light starts to break the sky, when once again darkness has tried all night to defeat the world, but God in the morning, when mercies are renewed, defeats the darkness again. And I'm running, and when I see that light pierce the sky, I can actually start to get excited a little bit. And I can run a little faster because now I can see where I'm going. I once was stumbling in darkness, not knowing where the true path was, but by God's light, now I see. Now I'm effective. Now I can run with purpose. I can run with confidence. I can run without fear. That's what God's light does. In Genesis, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Theologians debate this text so often because the sun is so clearly depicted several verses later. I've even had people tell me in an attempt to explain what this light was, hey, you know, Jesus is called the light of the world. In the New Testament, and here God's creating light. Is that where God created Jesus? Wrong! Jesus is not created. He is eternally existing with the Father in the Trinity. So what is this light that God has made? There's any number of ways to understand it. And lest I give you some deep theological reason that it's a different sun or some moonlight or some star, like so many others, let me just say this. God said, let there be light, and there was light. The concept of the defeat of darkness was created by God. God invents the ability for you and I to see Him. 
let there be light. The theme of light is a constant running through Scripture. The balance between light and dark is a balance in our own souls after salvation. It runs all the way to Revelation. And I didn't even include the Revelation text, but you all know it. We will exist in heaven with the Father, Revelation 22, and we will have no need of sun, for he will be there and he will be their light. Think about Moses who had to be stuffed into the crevice of a mountain so that God, whom passed by and saw his shirt tail, he would not explode for the glory, would just blow him away right there. And even then, his face shining so bright, he had to wear a veil when he came down the mountain because he was blinding the people because he saw the backside of God hidden in the cleft of a rock. But now, in a New Testament covenant, the Spirit of God resides within you. Why have you not yet been destroyed by that glorious light? Could it be your repentance of sin and your belief in Christ has made you able to receive this Holy Spirit? I would say yes. In fact, I would say it's only through repentance and belief. There is no person who will modify their behavior. There is no person who will be good enough. There is no one who will be righteous enough to receive the Holy Spirit apart from the work of Christ. Only with Jesus can you and I stand that kind of spiritual power. And it's not yours to wield. It is not, this is not Star Wars. There's no force that you'll harness. And people think that. They call us preachers and they go, you guys must have some kind of bat red phone straight to heaven, don't you? As if I could email and it says, God at heaven.com. Say, God, I got a big one for you. Like, you got to know about this. False religions throughout history have done that. They have raised up the priests and prophets to say, you need me to get to God. I will talk to him for you. You will sit there and do nothing except give us more money and whenever we need a new building, chip in. We have the Catholic Church who invented the concept of purgatory out of a false notion that they needed to build another basilica and we needed more taxes to do it. And what's the best way to do that? Hey, pay me some more money. And you know your person who died? They're sort of in this place that's not hell, but it's not heaven, and I can make sure they go to heaven. That's a sales pitch, isn't it? Tetzel famously said, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. You know what Tetzel was not preaching? The word of God. The spark of the Protestant movement was found in Martin Luther, who read Metanoiete, you repent, and said, huh, that's different than the Latin, do penance. That's not the same thing. I have to repent of my sins to Christ, not a man intermediate state that I have to go through and spark the very movement that you and I are still enjoying today. Almost as if God is declaring his presence to us, his people, when he says, let there be light, God speaks into existence the illumination of all creation with a voice. A voice that creates matter at its most vocal instruction. And we want this, don't we? We love the, abil the ability to speak and things happen, don't we? That's why it's good to be the boss. Because it's like being God. That's why we want our children to listen to us. Hey, go clean your rooms. And suddenly the room is clean and you start to feel like God. I did that. Except there's a problem in my house. My deity is sometimes not recognized. Because I say for things to happen, and then they don't happen. 
I go out in the yard and I look, I look at the dog. Why, why did you do this? I go out and look at the storm. Why did you tear up my stuff? Why? I didn't want this to happen. I spoke against it, but yet it still happened. I've often criticized Word of Faith movements and healers who apparently have the ability to physically heal in their church service when money is being given, but they have no ability in the cancer ward of the children's hospital. And that might sound like a harsh criticism to you, but let's just be consistent with our message. These things are false. You and I do not have the vocal ability of deity that God has. And it's a good thing. Can you imagine if we did? The hatred and darkness of our hearts, corrupted by sin, when somebody wronged us, we would say, man, I'd kill him if I could. What would happen if you had that vocal ability? Would there be anybody left? Would you yourself still be in existence? The self-loathing so many of us struggle with, would that not take you out as well? As the sun rises over the rim of the world and breaks the darkness hold upon it, so also does God speak light and break the darkness upon it. And only God can do this. Not me, not some other preacher, not some other words. Only the word of God can do this. If you would, turn to Acts 26. Verse 14, let us see now the Apostle Paul recounting his testimony to King Agrippa. Acts 26, verse 14. Verse 14 begins, when we had all fallen to the ground. That's a good place to be in the Bible, isn't it? The presence of God fallen, prostrate upon the ground. Paul says to King Agrippa, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language. That is highly interesting if you like languages. God was speaking Hebrew to Paul. How fascinating. We love in this day of trying to understand tongues and languages and who can do what. God is speaking Hebrew. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So this voice of light has illuminated Saul's very intents of his heart. It's so easy to go, well, Saul was known for persecuting, but the voice of light confronting him now knew why he was down that road in the first place, knew where he was going and to do what. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I said, who are you, Lord? Because only God can know my heart. He said, quaking in fear, who are you, Lord? He already knew who it was. Almost as if to say, I don't wish that you were Lord right now. But here you are, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Like King David, when the prophet Nathan said to him, you are the man. You are the man. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me and to those to which I will appear to you. Paul lost his sight over this encounter, had to receive it in the hands of the brother, and this being the plan of God. Verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This is what we do. 
God has given us a ministry from darkness to light, from Satan to God. And this is not a ministry that we should sit around, twiddle our thumbs and go, well, maybe next time. We'll do better next time. We'll try harder next time. No, now is the time. The gospel is here, now. Darkness to light, Satan to God. Unbeliever to worshiper. To open their eyes that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Who's making all this happen? Did I do it for you? Pastor Robin do it for you? Did some great preacher do it for you at some point? No. Heralds and proclaimers. Nothing more if I had a big gong banging it or a trumpet to sound. Turn to Jesus. Turn to the Savior. Receive salvation through repentance and belief. Only in the name of Jesus Christ. God has delivered you from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. What does he say in Matthew? You are a city set on a hill. Hide not yourself. Who would place a cover over a candle in their house? So why would you? I was struck by a final phrase, and it looks like I have time. As when I took this job, I was given no time limit. Some things were encouraged, but I'm young and I, I ignored it. <laughs> In James 18, James 1.18, there's a very interesting phrase. The purpose of the verse is that we are being brought by the word of truth, the scripture, and the accurate gospel message to be first fruits of God's creatures, that is, bearing fruit of worship to Him. But I am struck by the phrase, four words at the beginning of verse 18, of His own will. And the reason I'm struck by this is that I hear so often and spend so much time dealing with the will of men, the plans and desires of men, the ideas of humans and humanity, which so often run to evil. And I was struck by this phrase, of his own will. James almost puts it in here, not an afterthought, but not even the main point of the verse. Goes on talking about truth and the first fruits. But what is his own will? And what does that mean for you and I? Well, if you would, turn to one of the most controversial texts of Scripture, but I don't believe it will be that way today in our context. Romans chapter 9, verse 19. I'm going, I hope, to prick your hearts just a little bit as I was pricked this week in studying. It is easy to read this text and only think about salvation. It's only usually argued in the context of salvation, predestination, these types of things. And those are accurate and right. But in our context today, I want to talk about the will of God that works its way out in your life every day and in every moment. Romans chapter 9, verse 19. Paul is giving in his systematic theology of the faith, which the book of Romans is, a defense for why God does what he does. And he doesn't have to defend God because God has done nothing wrong. He's simply explaining why God does what he does. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you? What right do you have? 
What ability do you have? What foundation do you have? You would answer God in anger with vocal cords that God has given you. You would shake a fist at heaven that God has granted you to be able to close and shake. Standing on feet that he made. Standing on dirt that he created. Shouting with the voice that he has breathed into you. Who are you to answer back to God? Will the molder say to Will the molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? And we do that, don't we? God, why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to my family? Why this hurt and pain? Why this death and struggle? Why, God? Why have you done this? Paul declares, We have no right. Why have you made me like this? Verse 21, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use is not God the creator done rightly with his creation and what standard would we have to answer back to him you didn't do right I know what the standard is it's my selfish heart you didn't do what I wanted Lord I didn't get what I thought I needed so now I'm going to pitch a little human sinful fit and end right back up where in the same place I started because the voice of man, even the dissenting voice of humans, does not disrupt the will of God. It can't go both ways. God cannot both have a wonderful plan for your life and also be in sovereign control of your life. I hear people say this all the time. Oh, God's got a good plan for me. And as soon as the good plan doesn't exactly go the way they want, God and His will are out the window. If God's in control, is he not in control? And so often, this I think this is such a superficial argument. And I think we're all more mature than that in here. We're not talking about some simple free will idea or sovereignty or any of that stuff. No. Right now, today, your worship, is your worship the will of God or not? And if you're sitting in here today and your desire is not the worship of God, it's very likely it's because you are unconverted and need to be saved. It's not the preacher's fault. It's not the church's fault. It's you. It would be me. I sat in church service after church service, planning only one thing, what me and the boys were going to do after. Was it the preacher's fault? Was it the church's fault? Me. Me and only me. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make His power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for His glory. It's the work of God, it's the will of God, and we have no right to challenge what God has done. I'm amazed by a God who is in such sovereign control that the very choice of my lunch this afternoon is based on the liberty He has given me. There is nothing I can choose from that God has not given me. Nothing I could, I could pull from that God did not provide. I stand before you now with lungs and a body on a stage made of wood that God has provided. What did I get apart from God? God cannot have a wonderful plan for your life and not be in control. Not at all. And Christian, I stand before you today. 
You cannot have it both ways. You cannot declare God's wonderful plan and at the same time, as soon as it doesn't go the way you want, say, well, I'm going to go do this instead. The work of Satan in temptation, the highway of holiness that runs straight to God, Satan builds billboards that you and I look at and we're drawn away by our lust. And the one who is unconverted stays out there in their sin and eventually will be cast into the lake of fire. But the one whom God is in, as they're running toward their sin, like King David, he will send a voice and a messenger to draw them back and walk the path of righteousness. If I'm being harsh with you today, I do not mean to. I simply mean to give you the truth of what God says. It's the burden of the preacher sometimes. But it is the will of God. Charles Spurgeon said this, The will of God is for our salvation. It was from the will of God that the very thought of salvation first arose. Had we been left to our own wills, we should have been willing to wander further and farther from God. No man originated the idea of restoration for our race. God himself willed it. And it is the purpose of his grace that our hopes can begin. The will which originated salvation shaped and formed it. It was God's will that ordained salvation by faith. Salvation through a turning sacrifice. Salvation by the way of new spiritual birth. Salvation by way of perseverance up to perfection. The great preacher is Charles Spurgeon. The lowly preacher Josh Thomas says the will of God is worship. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. And we will finish our service today. Matthew chapter 4. The devil has confronted Jesus after his 40 days. And beginning in verse 8. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Tempter, tempting with everything. And I'm struck by the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Even that is a false glory Satan is presenting to Christ. What glory do the kingdoms of the world have? There is only glory in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdoms of the world have death. And they only do well when they submit to worship of Christ. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Human, do not think you would have stood there apart from the power of Christ and resisted this temptation. Every time you sin, and however recently you sinned, it's because Satan offered you the riches of the world and you went after it. It is only Christ who can do what he does and say what he does. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan! I love that. I imagine a voice like thunder rumbling through the desert and bouncing off the mountains when he says this. Be gone, Satan! And how does he send Satan away? How do you defeat the temptations of the devil? How do you send evil packing away from you? You go to the word of God. Follow Jesus' example. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Only. The will of God for you today is worship. That's it. 
Everything is born in worship. Your salvation, your mercy, the grace God has given you, your good deeds, the, the service that you do, your, your attendance even at church, it is all designed by God to lead up to your worship of the Holy One, the One, the Most High. Is this what you want? Because if it's not what you want, then there is also a message for you. A message that the molder has given to the rotten clay. If you would be rotten, I would send a Savior to forgive you. I would send a sacrifice to atone, and I will send my Spirit to lead you into righteousness. If you don't want to worship God today, it is my hope that you would repent today. It is my hope that you would turn to the Savior and say, Lord Jesus, I need you. But once again, I've failed. Once again, I've fallen. And I find no worship in my heart. I find only darkness and no light. So, Lord, I need you. Be saved today. Turn to the one who can save you today. And if you're a Christian sitting in here today, but the darkness of the world has been getting close, it's been besieging you on all sides, you feel like your defenses are about to fall, your little light's about to go out. I've often compared this Christian life as walking down the beach during a hurricane trying to keep a candle lit. And on your own strength, would you ever do it? But I'm talking about a candle given by Christ that has an inward power, powered by the deity of God that will never go out. And you could stand before the hurricane and sing worship to God, knowing your light will never go out. Christian, if you are struggling today, you need sanctification. And it is near. So turn to it. Don't be afraid. I know it's going to hurt a little bit. God, it hurts when the surgeon cuts into the body. But the healing process can't begin until what is bad is taken out. What you need is the power of God. Be gone, Satan, for you shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. This is the will of God, the Father of lights, the one who gives good gifts, and the one that I speak to you now. You need Jesus. Turn to him. And what did Jesus wonderfully say? Those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Those who come to me truly, broken, and full of repentance, I will not cast out. He loves you. Turn to him today. You need him. I need him. And as we pray, I hope there's some of you in here who may pray for salvation, but I hope every believer in here will pray for sanctification because we each and every one need it. So let us turn to him now and seek the wonderful face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, once again, I thank you for your word. Lord, it stirs in my heart this idea of light over darkness, the will of God over the sinful will of men. And Lord, I'm so wonderfully thankful today for your word Lord because it is the thing that truly communicates the purification of our hearts it is the only message that is meant for our good every other voice of the world is meant for my temptation and my damnation but not you Lord your message is for my righteousness your message is for my atonement your gospel is for glory turning me from an evil selfish worshiper of only self Lord, to a selfless worshiper of the Most High King. Lord, thank you so much. 
And it's my hope that all of God's people would agree by saying, Amen.